0: Well, tonight, um, what I want to do is explore some further issues with you, some investigations. But first of all, I'm going to start off <clears throat> with some comments, really, kind of reflections and comments on various meditation styles. Because particularly when people come to meditation for the first time, they find a bewildering array of different meditations also if they go to you know, places in the city there's also a bewildering array of Buddhisms um, there's no such thing as Buddhism by the way in the singular there's more, more like Buddhism there's all kinds of different styles of practice and traditions and cultures and so I just want to spend a few moments really looking at some of those <coughs> and perhaps sort out a little of the confusions or add to them <laughs> which is <laughs> quite probable. Um, the first thing to say, um, and this I know, I, I kind of might have said this in fleeting one of the nights before, um, but the first thing I want to say is no such thing as meditation in Buddhism, um, which usually comes as quite as a shock to a lot of people. Um, and I'll say a reason why, I'll give a reason why I say that, is because the word meditation speaks Latin. Whereas the word which we translate as meditation in, from the Pali and Sanskrit, bhavana, doesn't mean anything like meditation whatsoever. It means cultivation. Um, and you get many a clue about the Buddha's environment by the kind of words that he uses and the roots of the words that he uses. And he comes from a, a culture in India which is just about to... Build cities and develop states, and it's basically an agrarian culture, which he arises from. So he uses words which are very familiar to the ordinary people, because he's speaking to ordinary people mostly. Um, he's speaking in a vernacular language, in an ordinary language. He's not speaking in an intellectual language at all. Um, he's speaking just to ordinary people, and he's using ordinary words, and he's often speaking to farmers and. You know, agriculturalists, basically. So he uses words which are drawn from their vocabulary. And the word bhavanar is actually derived from root in Sanskrit and Pali, which actually means to grow, to actualize, to make manifest. And so the whole purpose of what we're doing in meditative practice is growing something. We're actually engaged in cultivating it, watering it, feeding it, nurturing, bringing something to full fruition. And given the various styles of meditation, I think you can get clearly what that is. There is samatha meditation, which is usually translated as calming meditation, calm abiding. There's vipassana, which is really to do with insight and understanding. Then there is metta, which is the one we've been focusing on this week, which is loving-kindness. And karuna, obviously focusing on the development of compassion. And there's lots and lots of others, but I'll concentrate on those ones as being the main, the principal forms of meditative practice. Now, really to understand what's going on in meditation, and I'm still using that word, despite the fact I really don't like it. Um, because it's just so inapposite. And when we're doing these cultivation practices, when we're engaging in so-called meditation, um, what we're attempting to do is obviously actualize calm. We're attempting to actualize some degree of insight, and we're attempting to actualize meta, actualizing it, bring it into your life. Um, I often think that meditation has these funny connotations, particularly in English, when we use it in English. Here. No? Generally, when I'm putting somebody off, I'll say something like, I'll go and meditate on it. (laughs) In other words, it's a nice idea, but you're not going to actually do anything about it. Whereas the whole purpose of what we're engaging is actually doing something about it. It's active. It's a verb. You know, again, cultivating. It's a verb, bringing something into being. And as I've often said, and I think I mentioned to you, I think probably in one of the early nights, Buddhism speaks in verbs. It never speaks in nouns. Virtually all of the lexicon of words that it uses are actually verb formations in the original language. Unfortunately, when we translate them into English, they end up as nouns. So in other words, instead of sangsara-ing, we get sangsara. Instead of nirvana-ing, we get nirvana. And they sound like places rather than states of being or ways of being. And that's quite important that you really hear that even when you continue to read these words almost in noun forms in the English. So we have these varying forms of meditation. And again, I'm using that word and I'm stuck with it, unfortunately. Um, And we have particularly calming meditation. And I'll just spend a few minutes talking about that. Because calming meditation was common through the Indian tradition. It wasn't something the Buddha invented. At all. In fact, it probably derives, and I don't know how well you know the story of the Buddha, but he spent a, a period according to the kind of mythology of the life of the Buddha. Actually, very little is known historically about him whatsoever, but according to the little we, we can glean out of the Pali Canon and various other texts, that the Buddha spent some time basically practicing with yogis in the forest. And one of the chief ways that they would have had of practicing would have been practices were aimed at something called samadhi. Samadhi is a kind of state of blissful concentration. And from the early yogic tradition, as it often still is within the yogic tradition in India now, this was seen as the end of the practice. Once one had attained this kind of blissful state of concentration, that was kind of the end of it. They didn't go beyond it. So the Buddha used, albeit used... Calm, calming meditation but he didn't see it as an end he saw it as a means he saw it as a means of honing the mind of calming the mind down of stopping it from jumping all over the place that, that kind of phrase I referred to the other night that Tibetans used which is monkey mind this leaping around all over the place actually beginning to calm the mind down in Tibetan texts they generally define these things and actually calming meditation in Tibetan texts, is defined as the ability to hold an object without being interrupted by discursive thought. So in other words, it's not implying that discursive thought disappears altogether. I always kind of say there is nobody going to stick a vacuum cleaner in your head and hoover out all the thoughts. You know, that's not going to happen. This is not what it's about, actually getting rid of all the thoughts. What it is, is the ability to be able to rest or hold the mind on that particular object without being constantly interrupted. You know the way we go on, the way that happens in our meditation practice at the moment, particularly in the beginning, is you constantly keep drifting off, constantly keep drifting off and have to bring yourself back. In a way, that is just the process. That is the process that we're engaged in, of the attentiveness to when the mind drifts off. And as I've said to you over this week so far, it doesn't matter, actually, how many times that happens uh, in the early stages. It really, really does not matter. This is all part of the process. We should not define meditation in terms of good and bad, how many times I've drifted away from the object. You know, it's that, just that ability to let the mind rest on the object, and gradually, gradually, it will slow down. It's practice, it's a technique... Um, there are many, many different types of meditative object. The breath is considered to be an object, for example, for everybody. Yet, if one looks at a text like Buddhaghosa's Visuddhimagga, which is actually um, the kind of chief meditation handbook, if you like, that's used within the Theravada tradition, the tradition of Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand, etc then we find that actually Buddha goes to recommends 40 different objects of meditation according to your personality type. <laughs> you know, if you're a greed type or a hate type you know, or an intellectual type, then you get very recommended various types of object. But actually the breath is a universal object. It's there for everybody, which is probably why whenever you go on retreats, you tend to get the breath as an object. So calming meditation is this ability to still the mind, to bring it down, to stop it from being broken, fragmented, caught up with all the machinations of our distracted minds. It's often likened to stilling the pool. When the pool is still, it will reflect the moon. When it's broken up and when it's choppy, it won't reflect the moon at all. All it will reflect is some kind of fragmented version of it. So if you really want to see clearly, then calming meditation is a way of beginning to see clearly. But in a sense, it's not an end. And the traditions, whether this is the case historically, we simply don't know, but the traditions have yoked together both calming and insight. So calming is often seen, in the modern world not so much so, but in certainly prior to the 19th century, calming was seen as a preliminary to the development of insight. So you would start off with calming meditation, you would attain at least something which is called access concentration. Access concentration is the ability to start concentrating. <laughs> I mean, it's as simple as that moving beyond simple applied and sustained thought, which is actually involved in any technique of learning anything, to actually developing at least a modicum of concentration here, which is access to the first state of absorption or jhana. The whole process of really attaining calming is, as I say, a technique. It's really akin to learning anything. Um, and really the stages which are talked about certainly in the early jhanic stages there are kind of different jhanic stages as kind of post the ordinary jhanic stages as well these are states of absorption basically states of concentration progressively more subtle and subtle versions of concentration where for example the self progressively drops out of the equation as we begin to meditate now, just to give you a very mundane example. Um, I'll give you two mundane examples, actually. A mundane example is something like learning to drive or learning a musical instrument. You know, in the initial stages, you have got to think about everything you do. You know, So much so that most of the time when you're learning, in the early stages of learning to drive, you're thinking about doing everything and actually not really driving. <laughs> you know, you're thinking about when to depress the clutch and to engage the gear and when to steer at this and when to put the indicator on and all of the various things that you have to do. Equally so in learning a musical instrument. You have to know where to put your fingers and when to you know, use your right hand if it's a stringed instrument and all the rest of it. It's, it's a really kind of complex, lots of thoughts involved in the early stages of it. As you get progressively more proficient then that kind of Sustained and applied thought starts to drop out of the equation you're ceasing to think so much it's becoming more an ability more trained so you don't at the early stage of let's take a kind of first jarnic stage in the first jarnic stage you're not having to think exactly where to put your fingers they're finding their way there naturally or more naturally in fact if you've probably noticed in anything like a technique like playing a musical instrument, the more you think about it, the worse it gets. <laughs> you know. So the ability to play really well is actually when the self as a conscious thinking self drops out of the equation and something else takes over. Um, I can liken this perhaps you know, to you know, the novice on the piano to the concert pianist. If you like the con- you know the The classical concert pianist who sits on the stage in front of lots of people is in a kind of advanced jhanic state of concentration. And so it can really be likened to a technique of learning how to become progressively absorbed so that the self drops out. Now this is actually an ability that we have anyway. And probably we've all experienced it at some time outside of a meditative situation when you've become absorbed, perhaps, into a task which you're doing. And one of the things that you notice <laughs> when you're actually progressively absorbed into a task is that self drops out the equation and time drops out of the equation. Both of those things fall out. And it's one of those things you go, my word, two hours have gone. Where has it gone? You know, or something of that sort. Because you've being so absorbed like the painter painting something the self is not there the self if if it's there at all is at the end of the brush you know it's right into the task in other words of doing and in a way that is what is occurring in calming meditation we're taking ourselves into a deep 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 level of concentration whereby the self and time drops out completely and then there are kind of all advanced stages of jhanas as well. But the early stages of that, in the very beginning stages, and again likening it to perhaps learning a skill, in the early stages we get what's known as pity arising, joy. You know, In other words, I've mastered it, and I've actually mastered a little bit of technique, and I'm beginning to feel some joy. I can now play a little bit of a halting tune or something like that. And so a little bit of joy arises. The next stage arises... And then we get the arising of sukha, you know, a kind of blissful state. Because I'm even more proficient. And then they have to go altogether. <laughs> you know, both pt and sukha, you know, joy and bliss actually have to drop out because we can get attached to them. And self is still involved in them, becoming attached to it. So we move progressively into these deep, deep states of concentration. Um, I think this is example, I'm going to tell you, I think, an amusing story. It's actually a Zen story. Some of you might have heard it before. It's a Zen story about a Zen master who's lying on his deathbed with all his disciples gathered round him. All of his disciples are there wanting and waiting to hear the master's last words, the final dispensation to them before he finally pops off. And they're all gathered round, and one of the chief disciples says, I think we ought to get the master something. And one of them says, Yes, I remember he'd loved this particular cake. And so one of the disciples rushes off and buys the cake for the master. And he's lying on his deathbed and they give the master this piece of cake. And the master eats a little bit and he dies, having just uttered the last few words. And one of the chief disciples who'd heard the last few words is surrounded by all the other disciples and said, What is the master's last words? He said it was beautiful cake. That's the state of utter absorption into the now. (laughs) Into the very moment. No thought of anything else other than being in the now. So, even in the dying process, beautiful cake is beautiful cake. with no thought of anything else. So that is real absorption, real absorption into the task. Now, as I say, in traditional Buddhist circles, and, and this really covers quite a lot of the traditions, although they might even not use the word samatha vipassanas" or shamatha vipassana, if it's in its Sanskrit form, they're actually there within the trainings. Generally then, it's followed on by vipassana, Vipassana is actually, in the modern world, quite unlike what it was in the world prior to the 19th century. There's been a lot of techniques developed since the 19th century, and there's what I call ancient Vipassana and modern Vipassana. Most of what gets taught is modern Vipassana. So we get techniques such as the Mahasi technique, which is something that takes place, for example, in Gaya House quite regularly, with bhante Dhamma. Um, and you get techniques such as, so called bare attention. These are very common. Now, in the ancient form, it took the form of seven purifications, the vipassana. The first two purifications were purification of morality, in other words, sila, then calming, and then five other paths which one has to traverse to have insight. Now, insight here is insight into things we've been talking about all the time over the last five, six nights or so. And they are insight into dukkha, insight into impermanence, and insight into not-self. This is what the Vipassana tradition is aimed at. It's aimed at actually creating the nibbanic state in other words the going beyond the samsaric state or the ring that I've spoken about it's aimed at bringing about realization and what do I mean by that well as I kind of described to you already dukkha well I think we know that fairly well I think it's reasonably familiar to most of us uh, impermanence it doesn't take a great brain to get yourself around the idea that everything is impermanent Not-self, perhaps a little bit more difficult, but I think it's, again, not a huge intellectual mountain to climb to get the notion of not-self. But having heard all of those, having heard probably endless discourses on them, having read probably endless books which mention dukkha, impermanence, and not-self, we still don't get it. It just doesn't click. Vipassana is the way to make it click. In other words, to actually go through the procedure so that you realize knowing and seeing is the phrases that the Buddha uses. Knowing and seeing, actually, that there is impermanence. Not acting as if there is impermanence, which is actually mostly what we do. You know, Oh yes, as I said to you last night, oh yes, I think there's impermanence around? Yeah, somebody broke my pen. <laughs> somebody stole it. Somebody took it. You know, all those things I joked about last night, you know, we don't really get it. There is subtle grasping after permanence, sometimes not quite so subtle either. You know, particularly when, you know, as i also gone on about quite a number of times when we try to stabilise a person, to stop them from changing or Impossible to do, but we don't want the other person to change, to become different. We don't want the things around us to change. You know? So there's kind of gross to subtle grasping after permanence. And what the meditations, these progressive meditations are doing, even in their modern form, and this is what they're meant to do, is lead us in to actually beginning to see that there is no such thing as permanence. There is no such thing as permanence whatsoever. So in other words, it moves from being simply intellectual comprehension to something that I would call an embodied knowledge. You know, really beginning to embody it, so that as I walk through the world, I do it with an embodied sense that nothing, there is nothing I can grasp after because then everything in everything, in a sense, is like grasping a handful of water. Yeah. There's nothing left. It runs away quite quickly. Now, the world is impermanent. We know that. We see things changing. But it's this subtle, subtle clinging, 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 grasping, 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 that this whole Vipassana tradition is there to elide, to actually bring us into full realisation, full recognition not just an intellectual comprehension. So we're moving beyond the intellectual comprehension. And the same is true of anatta, of the doctrine of not-self. Hence, I'm using the word doctrine again. It's not even particularly. It's the idea that there isn't actually a substantial self. To really get clear what this is, is the idea that we do not have an essence. We do not possess an essence. This is taken even further in the way Buddhist thought is Is in some sense developed over the centuries. It's implicit in what the Buddha says. If we do not have a stable, dependent, permanent self, then nothing else does either. There is nothing that possesses anything of that sort. So instead of a world of things, of solidity, we've got a world of openness, of processes. In other words, instead of discrete objects, we actually then move, and I'll perhaps explain this further tomorrow night, I won't go into it now, but we move into a world or an awareness of much greater interdependence of processes meshing, being together, something like an ecosystem, if one is thinking about analogies. An ecosystem, you can't actually remove anything from the ecosystem without having an effect on everything else and the same is true of this world it's a world of intermeshing processes and in a sense there is no idea of us being discreet unto ourselves and the kind of phrases that we possibly often often use oh it doesn't matter what I do it's not going to hurt somebody else well this whole point about this is in body, speech and mind everything we do has ramifications everything we do in body, speech, and mind. Obviously directly in terms of our actions of body, directly in terms of our speech, but also almost this intangible element of thought, intention. This intention, the chaitanā, is so important. You know, It's the intention behind the act. And this was the Buddha's gift, in some senses, to the world, and actually saying, look, it's not what you do, it's the intention behind what you do that is so important. So actually, even good actions done with the wrong intention somehow are karmically soiled here. And karma, remember, is just simply this word, as I explained the other night, that means action, nothing else. And actions are having consequences. So we begin to see into this. We begin to see into the nexus of the complex relations of cause and effect. It begins to make us aware of that. Hence the reason for this big other term that's used, usually associated particularly with the early texts of satipatthana, mindfulness. Yeah. The word sati, in, which is embedded in this word satipatthana, is a very great, there's two very famous suttas in the Pali Canon, which are texts which are devoted to an explanation of this notion. There's the Mahasatpatana Sutta in the Digha Nikaya, in the long discourses, and there's a shorter version of it in the middle-length discourses of the Buddha. But the word sati is a very ancient word. And in in Indian languages, the word sati, both in Sanskrit and Pali, had the connotation of remembering something. It has that connotation. It also has the connotation of the directedness of attention to something. And it preserves both, although not a lot of the former is made of it in the traditions. But it preserves both. The idea of remembering, calling to mind what you're actually doing. Like my story of the Zen master. The Zen master is in total mindfulness of what he's doing. Even in the dying process, he's conscious of eating a wonderful cake. Even in that process. So he's actually attentive to what is going on in this. Now, it's a wonderful word. It actually works very well in English if we think of remembrance here. To remember is to bring something out of fragmentation into wholeness, into fullness, into focus. So from a scattered, fragmented mind in the process of mindfulness with this idea of remembering, to remember is to bring back together to remember something that is what's going on in mindfulness practice and again there's lots of them there's, as I say a whole text it's actually one of the primary texts which are devoted to Bhavana meditation practice within the Pali Canon which the Buddha expounds on and there's all sorts of commentaries to it as well and it's the foundation for much of Vipassana within the modern world so Vipassana is about getting these absolute insights Not just, I say, intellectual understanding. And I will keep stressing that to you. It's not just intellectual understanding. That will profit you not, generally. The intellectual understanding is only a stepping stone. One has to understand intellectually merely to move on into the experience. Remember, it's the authority of experience which is important. It's not the gathering of knowledge. That just becomes another, in a sense, craving, grasping complex. We grasp after and we crave knowledge and we think somehow we're going to be changed just by having the knowledge. That's never been the Buddhist way, although the knowledge is important in order to make progress. Without the knowledge, there can be no progress made. In other words, we very rarely move into the actual process of practicing. And in fact, the knowledge itself becomes signposts actually on the way, so that we begin to plot out the route, that we begin to know where we are map the topography whichever particular simile or analogy works for you here we're beginning to to map the territory that is the mind so in Vipassana we're bringing ourselves into insight into the way things what's called Yatabhutanam in Pali and Sanskrit which is the way things actually are and the way things actually are is impermanent not self and actually in samsara dukkha and the dukkha because we grasp after the very opposites, self and permanence. Yeah? That's what we're grasping after. You know, self, as we know, is this kind of rampant, stamping, screaming child, usually inside most of us. Yeah? I, would, uh, I was saying to somebody this afternoon, whenever I sort of kind of have this notion of the self, I always see it as this kind of rather spoiled child that keeps stamping its foot, saying, I want, I want, I want. Yeah? You know, until it gets its own way. Um, but like a lot of children I won't say all of them, if you ignore it, it might go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what's involved. So the person is really getting the clarity about it. Now I don't personally and this is a very personal reflection I personally don't think that is simply enough. I think there has to be love involved in this as well. And actually, in the text, the more and more, even from an academic point of view, that I study them, uh, let alone teaching them in a Dharmic sense as well, the more I see the Buddha offering many, many pathways to liberation. Yeah. Samatha really isn't the pathway to liberation, perhaps in itself. Vipassana certainly has been lauded by the traditions as being the pathway to liberation. But I still think the Buddha has this other strategy which is the strategy of, well, the Brahmaviharas, The brahma Vaharas being kindness, loving-kindness, compassion, generally translated as sympathetic joy, and I hate the word sympathy, it sounds like it's patronizing, it's really appreciative joy, um, really being joyful at another's joyfulness, and then equanimity itself. And those, I think, are also direct pathways to liberation themselves. And in fact, I think, without being able to see with love, it's just rather cold. In the Tibetan tradition, they really make a strong point of this and by saying, for two wings of the bird to fly, for the winged bird to fly, it must have two wings, the wings of compassion and the wings of insight and understanding, usually translated as wisdom. Without that, there's a kind of rather lopsided bird. It's sort of flapping its way around. In fact, they even make it even stronger by saying that wisdom. I'll use the normal translation for it here. That wisdom without compassion is cold. Compassion without wisdom is sloppy. So you need both. In other words, not that it's not good enough to keep noting, 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 noting. I think it's important that one loves what one sees in the noting process. Without that, it remains rather distanced, rather perhaps cold. And so the whole process of the development of metta itself in bringing the eye of kindness to what is seen, because remember, in the metta practice, It's stirring up all sorts of stuff. It's stirring up a lot of unexamined material which comes up. And you see it. Just as you would in Vipassana practice, you will see it. It comes to the surface. It unlocks those deep elements of the unconscious, of the psyche, um, which are there. Um, And it allows them to rise to the surface and be seen. But here it's allowing them to be seen with love and perhaps with patience as well. So, the kind of message I'm trying to put forward is I think that metta is a complete practice in itself because it really encompasses the whole of what the Buddha is trying to do. And I'll take you back almost to, I thought it was first, it might have been the second night, when I read to you the metta sutta. The Buddha pulls no punches about it. He says that there is no better way to live. And other than with metta in fact just to kind of push this even further I'll read you a tiny bit from another text which actually is a source actually for a lot of bare attention as well which is something known as the itivutika which is um, a small text in the Pali Canon a lot of the texts are very long but this is a very small text and it's included in what I call the odds and sods bits of the Pali Canon uh, all the bits that couldn't be included in the main parts and they just gathered them together in this kind of kind of miscellaneous collection of various texts. And this is slightly longer than some of the quotes I've read to you previously, but I think it really makes the point I'm trying to stress here. Um, this was said by the Lord, obviously the Lord being the Buddha, bhikkhus, monks, whatever grounds there are for making merit productive of a future birth, all these do not equal a sixteenth part of the mind release of loving-kindness. The mind mind release of loving kindness surpasses them all and shines forth bright and brilliant. Just as the radiance of all the stars does not equal a sixteenth part of the moon's radiance, but the moon's radiance surpasses them and shines forth bright and brilliant, even so, whatever grounds there are for making merit productive for future birth, all these do not equal one sixteenth part of the mind release of loving kindness." Just as in the last month of the rainy season, in the autumn, when the sky is clear and free of clouds, the sun, on ascending, dispels the darkness of space and shines forth, bright and brilliant, even so, whatever grounds there are for making merit productive of future birth, all these do not equal one sixteenth part of the mind release of loving kindness. And just as in the night, at the moment of dawn, the morning star shines forth, bright and brilliant, even so, whatever grounds there are for making merit productive of future birth, all these do not equal one sixteenth part of the mind release of loving-kindness. The mind release of loving-kindness surpasses them all and shines forth bright and brilliant. For one who mindfully develops boundless loving-kindness, seeing the destruction of clinging, the fetters are completely worn away. If, with a mind uncorrupted, he pervades just one being... With pervasive, loving, kind thoughts, he makes a millionth of merit. But a noble one produces an abundance of merit by having a compassionate mind towards all living beings. Those royal seers who conquered the earth, crowded with beings, went about performing sacrifices. This was very traditional in Indian society. The horse sacrifice, the man sacrifice, the water sacrifice... And that they call the unobstructed. But these do not even share one sixteenth part of a mind cultivated by love. Just as the entire starry host is dimmed by the moon's radiance, one who does not kill, nor cause others to kill, who does not conquer, nor cause others to conquer, who acts kindly towards all living beings, who has enmity for none. He is an awakened one. This too is the meaning of what was said by the Lord. I don't think he's beating around the bush there somehow. Um, I think he's making it pretty explicit about what loving kindness does uh, for us. Yet traditionally loving kindness has been kind of relegated to second class citizen uh, within it. And I don't think that is what the Buddha is really speaking about. So, kind of recapping. Gosh, a lot of time has gone. (laughs) I've got a great list of things I was going to talk about, but never mind. (laughs) This is just one bit. So, just talking about the meditative traditions, the various styles we've got. We've got the samatha, which aims at the calming, which can be seen as a precursor for the development of vipassana. Vipassana itself, I might add, although I've kind of made a big case for metta, vipassana, I think, genuinely practice brings about love for what is seen. It brings about it. It brings about understanding, and understanding will bring about love. However, metta itself will also do the same if practiced, if practiced consistently. The other Brahma Viharas, and I haven't gone into them um, equally, we're going to touch on compassion. we can probably start, I'll probably start to talk about compassion a bit tomorrow night, and we'll do some practices on Saturday, which are totally devoted to compassion. But compassion itself this movement out into the world. And remember that the practices that the Buddha recommends that we engage in are part of a strategy. The meditative practices themselves are only part of a strategy. The strategy goes something like this in the traditional form. Now I'll use the Pali and then explain what it means. Because the Buddha talks about sort of something called Sutta Maipanya. Sutta Maipanya was the, was the understanding that came through hearing the teaching. Then he talked about Chintamai which was the understanding that came about through really contemplating it, through really studying it, through really appropriating it for yourself. And then there was finally the word I've used all this night to talk about meditation, Bhavana Maipanya. Bhavana Maipanya was the understanding that came about through the actualization the cultivation of what had previously been heard and studied and thought about and that was part of the total strategy the buddha never envisioned meditation simply on its own it was part of an overall strategy towards awakening he didn't ask people by the way to abandon their brains that was never part of his you know his kind of approach to things in fact, you'll find in many of the suttas, in many of the texts, if one directly goes to them, you find him kind of reasoning with people, getting them to think it through for themselves, you know, asking them questions to try and develop their sense of understanding. Now, in the absence of somebody doing that for us, we have to do that for ourselves. Now, this is why I call it an inquiry. It is not a fait complete there is something traditionally which I was going to touch on tonight perhaps it will be subject for tomorrow night there is something which is called the seven treasures in, particularly in Theravada Buddhism it's used in the other traditions but not so much but in Theravada Buddhism there is some, this thing known as the seven treasures and these are so called the treasures that make one rich beyond material wealth beyond material wealth in other words they make you spiritually rich not materially rich and the first one starts off as being sada. Sada is usually translated as faith, which is an absolutely appalling translation, um, because it really means confidence or trust. And it really starts to talk about, in other words, the inquiry that we have, the inquiry that we engage in. If one had was overwhelmed by total sceptical doubt, you would never engage in the inquiry in the first place. You might have doubt as you pass through it, which is part of the inquiry. But total sceptical doubt would stop you from moving beyond the first point. In other words, when the Buddha is recommending having confidence and trust, he's really only giving us a pedagogical device. (laughs) If you went into, when you were at school, and disbelieved everything the teacher said to you, you would never learn anything. If you went to the doctor and actually disbelieved, actually might be wise sometimes these days, but never mind. <laughs> if you disbelieved everything they ever said to you, you might not get well. In other words, you have to have a degree of competence or trust when you go to, if you like, the expert. But here, the expert is the spiritual expert. And that's the way the Buddha is often likened to a spiritual doctor. And the whole of the four ennobling truths is usually seen as a diagnosis, as I said, and a regimen to cure, you know, a regimen to healing you. And so it's important that we have this, but it's important also that we don't understand this notion of confidence and trust as being blind faith, which is why I don't like the translation of faith. Because if we, if we have that, then it's, just a, it's basically just the adherence to another set of propositions. And often... Um, traditions which demand what I call blind faith demand it of a whole set of propositions. Something like the credo, the creed, is adherence to a set of propositions which in a sense can't be verified. What the Buddha is saying is everything that he's teaching, although one might not, might not see it now, can actually be verified in your experience. But you've got to have confidence and trust to even embark on wanting to Verify them in your experience. And even to engage in the meditative procedure, one has to have a degree of confidence and trust because we are aiming towards cultivation. We're aiming towards actually beginning to see things the way they are. We're a long way off at this moment in time. So when the Buddha speaks about freedom, nibbana, release, seeing the way things really are, in a way, these are promissory notes, just in the sense of the way I've held out promissory notes and said, I'll talk about certain things. Yeah. But they are simply promissory notes to get us to begin to engage in the process. Now, he starts off by something we really can see, doesn't he? He talks about Dukkha. As I say, Dukkha is not a belief. You know, you can't say, well, I'm a Buddhist because I believe in Dukkha. Dukkha. <laughs> Yeah. That's not what it's about. You know, it's either there or it's not. It's there in your life or it isn't. You can see it or you can't. Yeah. If you can't see it, then actually there's no motivation to practice, in a sense. This is why in the traditional kind of understanding of the cosmology, it says that the devas, you remember the ones I told you had everything here, the gods, um, traditionally have no motivation to practice because they think they've got everything. You and I, (laughs) perhaps, I would suggest, that um, we perhaps perceive that we haven't quite got everything, so therefore there is a motivation, particularly when we see Dukkha in action. So when we come back to the insight of talking about Vipassana meditation, immediately you get one. That's your first insight, that there is Dukkha around. Now, what you're then expanding on that And we can also see that that dukkha is caused by, for example, grasping after permanence when there is impermanence. That it simply isn't there. The more I grasp after it, the more I'm grasping after the evanescent. That it's simply, I cannot hold on to it. And as I kind of implied when I talked about death the other evening, well, you can't take any of it with you anyway. None of it is going to come with you whatever you have accumulated for yourself in terms of knowledge or possessions none of it can be taken so the grasping procedure in a sense is, is void it's null in the end and then there is always this grasping after self and actually even in the early stages I think we can begin to perceive the misery which is caused by grasping after self yeah, you're all sitting there with some really kind of miserable faces now <laughs> But grasping after self really does create so many problems. This is the egotism that we talk about in the Western world. The ego, that spoilt child that has to be constantly pampered, constantly fed, constantly you know, kind of congratulated and preened and told how wonderful it is. You know, We can see how much misery that causes and how much it cuts us off from others. Yet when we begin to understand not self and even just to begin to get an inkling of it intellectually we understand the lack of substance that this has now perhaps I'm going to finish there since the tape's turning over (laughs) well I'm, I'm going to perhaps just kind of finish off because one of the things that's important, I think, to remember through this whole process, and I've been stressing this to a few individuals who have seen me today, is that one also to keep a humour about all this as well. That one has to keep a sense of humour about the whole process. Um, because the more and more we look into the nature of what is actually going, and the more and more we begin to real, reveal the fantasy that we're actually living a lot of the time, the more ludicrous it seems.
1: Yeah?
0: Does that ever strike you, the ludicrous nature of what you're in, the games that you play, the, the grasping after self, the, the little stamping child inside of us that doesn't quite grow up? Um, you know, this is almost hilarious yeah, in its kind of nature when we begin to see it. And certain traditions use a lot of humour. One of the things that always struck me, particularly in my early early training, because I was trained in two traditions, which was the Tibetan tradition and the Theravada tradition, in my early training, one of the things that really I used to appreciate about Tibetans was they laughed a lot. There was nothing such as I would call a pious religious attitude. The teachers around me laughed a lot. The Dalai Lama giggled constantly (laughs) through everything. Um, he was very serious at times as well but I always remember one particular instance where starting off on a very so-called serious ceremony where they were doing this particular puja, what happened? The chant master started off on one chant the Dalai Lama started off on another completely different chant and so the whole kind of, if you imagine a room full of about 200 monks just fell around laughing (laughs) for about for about 20 minutes <laughs> until they all recovered their composure to be, actually be able to get on with the chanting again. You know, and that, that kind of bringing humour to the practice was what really struck me about that, and that's something we can really learn sometimes from these traditions, because we often bring, I think, a sense of Western religiosity to the practice. Um, I joked about those who stayed behind on the first morning. I joked about people going off to do walking medita- meditation looking like they have been condemned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Rather than my experience of having seen it done and doing it in Sri Lanka often the time, where the monks would be doing it with a big beaming smile on their face. You know. There's a kind of religiosity that we bring to things in the West which, you know, which actually is piety. We have this piety that we bring to it, which is very much like the church on Sunday syndrome. And when it comes to our own practice, if we go back into the ordinary world, and I'll talk a lot more about this on on the final morning, because I want you to have something to take away with you, not just, obviously, the practices that we've been doing, but something practical to go away with. One of the things that is necessary to understand is that when we do a practice outside, you don't just do it on one day of the week. You know, it's not like that. It's not like you can accumulate all your spiritual merit on one day. You know, it's actually about the living of your life and the integration of the practice into your life so that there isn't a separation. Uh, again, drawing on my own early beginnings with this involvement, particularly with Tibetans, um, Tibetans used to say to me, used to say, why is it that Westerns kind of put life down here and spiritual practice up here? You know, and never get the two together at all. You know, we see them as almost compartmentalised. You know, I go to work and I do my thing, and as a hobby I come home and meditate. I'm kind of pushing it to its extreme, but that often that's the way it is. Or as a religious spiritual practice, which is special. I compartmentalise it into a particular portion of my day. Where actually the, what we're talking about is something seamless. When we're talking about... The practice of samatha, vipassana, metta. Your best place of practice is your workplace. Nowhere else. It's in. when you're in ordinary life, when you're walking through the city, when you're walking through the countryside, you're observing. It's the quality, if you're talking about samatha, it's the quality of attention that you bring to what you're doing so that you're in the moment. It's the quality of noting something to see perhaps. That it's impermanent. Those phrases that I used last night, this is what brings about realization of not self. This is not me, this is not mine, and this is not I. With anything that is arising for you, this is not me, this is not mine, and this is not I. So, in fact, there is no self for it to be attached to in this sticky way that we often see it to note impermanence. Again, often this is done, particularly in Japanese Buddhism, humorously. I've said this so many times, but I I still love this haiku. It still has me rolling around every time I I say it, which is, you know, my house burnt down last night. Now I have a clear view of the moon. (laughs) In other words, getting you to see something else through it. Or... A beautiful red rose by the roadside. My horse ate it. (laughs) In other words, getting is also to see the impermanence of something, and to see how it's just there fleetingly. So we become appreciative, and we really move into that appreciation. So to wind this up, which was this was just going to be the intro, by the way. This wasn't the subject of the talk this evening. <laughs> but really what we're talking about is moving these aspects of, of calm, insight, metta and all the others into our daily lives. So they begin to enrich our daily lives. Begin perhaps to bring something wonderful back into our lives that we've lost over the years. we become progressively, in a sense, hardened. You know, as I say, we get buffeted by the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, don't we, as we go through our lives. We kind of develop thick skin to a lot of it. Some of us, some of us remain sensitive and sometimes all too sensitive, and it really kind of shakes us up. Um, but a lot of us also develop uh, almost calluses on our nervous system here. And this is really to bring us back into some kind of living, wholesome relationship with what is, so that we begin to perceive the wonder of it all, the amazement of being that gets so easily lost when we're kind of wallowing in self and wallowing in the dukkha that goes with self but that's not meant to be kind of pointing the finger of criticism saying we're bad people because we do that we just don't know any different coming to meditation coming to this idea of cultivation of cultivating these things will bring I think something to life will bring an enrichment to it and bring perhaps back a degree of the sense of wonder that we might have experienced as children. Certainly perhaps it brings us back to one of the other quotes I gave you the other night, which is Eliot's. You know, At the end of all of our journeying to return to the same place and know it for the first time. Okay, I'll finish there. Gosh, I've gone on for a long time. Okay, well, usual procedure. Um, I'll open it up and see if there's any responses and questions or anything. As I say, that was the preamble. I've noticed in your talks you haven't used the word God very much. I know Buddhism came out of Hinduism
1: and it was born into Hindu. Is that what it been
0: God's? Um, well, this, this is one of the things that really marks Buddhism from many other so-called religious traditions. The Buddha does not speak about God at all. He comes out, or certainly the tradition emerges out of what was an early form of Hinduism. It wasn't actually Hinduism in those days. Hinduism starts really much later. It arises out of something called Brahmanism. And in Brahmanism there was lots and lots of gods wasn't a god, there wasn't a creator god, there was lots of gods. There were gods of everything, basically. There was gods of the water, there was gods of the fire, Agni, there was gods of the moon, Chandra, there was gods of the sun, Surya. And the whole purpose of that early tradition was to keep the gods happy. <laughs> you know, because they preserved the cosmic order. Now, the Buddha didn't buy into any of that. And you have to remember, he's very much as a lot of religious traditions are, coming out of a particular time, at a particular place. Just as Christ emerges out of Palestine at that particular period with the Judaic background, so the Buddha emerges out of India with all of the belief systems that were around at that time. And the first thing the Buddha did was eschewed or put aside belief systems. In fact, he said that the question of God was a metaphysical question. It was one in sense incapable of being answered so when he was asked about things like a creator and why was it all here and things like that he remained resolutely silent he never said a word about it when pressed um, once about this he replies about the ideas of metaphysical questions and asking things like is there a God and when does it all come from and all this sort of thing he replied with a parable as so many religious teachers do He said, asking these questions is a bit like a man being hit by an arrow. And he falls to the floor and lies on the floor with the arrow stuck in him. And they all rush up to him and say, shall we get the doctor? And the man lying with the arrow stuck in him says, before you get the doctor, can you tell me the name of the man who fired the arrow? Can Can you tell me the name of his brothers? What caste he came from? What was his family name? What village did he come from? And there's a whole load of other stuff. And then he gets into, what is the arrow made of? What are the feathers in the arrow made of? You know, are, they, are they from goose? Are they from eagle? Are, you know, and there's a whole list of questions. And the Buddha very, very succinctly puts it. He says, the man who asks questions in this way will die. <laughs> <laughs> and the point he's making is, and remember this really comes back to our starting point, and the point I've been emphasizing the whole week, which is about Dukkha. You know, the Buddha is saying we have a problem And that problem is the suffering, the unsatisfactoriness we find ourselves admired in. If we really want to deal with that, then we concentrate on the problem. Now, all of those questions might be very interesting, in a sense, if you're asking whether there's a God or there isn't a God. Where did it all come from? How was creation started? All these kind of big, big questions that human beings have had for centuries, and they were there present in India, just as they were present in ancient Greece as well. But the Buddha is saying, if you really, really want to solve this problem of Dukkha, concentrate on the problem. Don't ask irrelevances. And so that's also partly the reason why God doesn't raise his, her head in Buddhism at all. He considers it to be irrelevant to the question he's dealing with. He says, if you want to know about things like that, go and ask the Brahmins. (laughs) Not me. If you want to know about Dukkha and the overcoming of Dukkha, then I'm your man. (laughs) But <laughs> no, he actually puts it more elegantly than that. <laughs> so who, who, who would a prayer be directed
1: to?
0: Prayer isn't directed to anybody, really. A prayer is an orientation of mind, if you like. It's not directed at something specifically. I mean, obviously in things like the Christian tradition and that we pray, or there is prayer to a deity, to a god. In the Buddhist tradition, it's more like a heartfelt wish. So, for example, if a Buddhist puts his hands together and says, May all beings be happy, it's not praying to, Well, God, can you make all beings be happy? It's saying, as a really kind of deep, deep, heartfelt, loving wish, May all beings be happy. And in other words, it's a part, again, of orienting the mind towards others and away from yourself. So, it's about mind transformation. I haven't said this, I usually actually say this on all the courses I teach, but Buddhism is about one thing. Not only is it about the transformation, not only is it about the overcoming of Dukkha, but it's the, it's the transformation of mind. Buddhism, in really in its totality, is about the transformation of mind. And in transforming the mind in a way you transform everything. Because you can transform your speech and your behaviour. Because remember, everything emerges from mind. Coming back to intention again the intention behind our speech, the intention behind our actions. And so the Buddha is aiming at transforming that mind from being a mixture of actually a lot of unwholesomeness and a, a bit of wholesomeness to transforming it into a wholesome mind. The terms that are used are actually kusala and akusala, from unskillful to skillful, from unwholesome to wholesome. That's the movement that the Buddha is really indicating and saying. In transforming to a wholesome mind, we overcome dukkha. It ceases if we totally transform all of the impediments that hold us to our samsara. so, prayer isn't directed at any body. Shiva, Christ. Yeah, that's not really present. In mean, some forms of Tibetan Buddhism you have deities, but even these really, even the deities, are considered to be manifestations of mind, nothing else, and they're kind of just skillful images which are used there. The gods, actually, it's very interesting. Within his own culture, Buddha, the Buddha relegated the gods to Sangsara. In other words, they just lived a lot better lives, awfully long ones, but they still had to be reborn.
1: Yeah.
0: And so all of the gods were in Sangsara, and that was just completely opposite to the, what you were referring to as the Hindu tradition, the Brahmanical tradition, where the gods were outside of Sangsara. Sangsara wasn't invention by the Buddha, by the way. Also, It was also part of Indian culture at that point. So he's utilising the kind of the Indian system, but changing it to a certain extent. And he's, in a way, I say he's very practical, Buddhism also, whilst just touching on that, isn't really um, a religion in the hard sense of religion. It's not like the monotheistic religions, um, which obviously has this root from the Latin, which means the bind one, to particular things, particularly a god and that. within It it comes from um, ligature, to bind, religiare, and... In Latin um, Buddhism isn't like that. Even the words which are used to translate some of the terms around what we would consider almost to be religious practice are mistranslated, actually. I mean, so for example, let's take a very common one, one I actually referred to a few nights uh, last week when I was teaching my meditation class. If we take the word which is usually translated as "monk." Monk sounds very religious, doesn't it? Well the actual word bhikkhu in or bhikshu in Sanskrit and Pali um, actually means a sharer, somebody who either shares their knowledge or shares the food that they gather in their arms around. So it's derived from a root which means to share with somebody. Takes completely the idea of monks out of it altogether and monasticism. You know, have ideas of enclosed orders and all this sort of stuff, which actually doesn't exist in Buddhism at all. Mon- mon- monasteries, I'm still using the word because it's the kind of word we're stuck with again, uh, are very open places. So a lot of the religious connotations really are not there when really you examine it and look at the practices themselves, just like prayer. That's a long answer to a short question. <laughs> yeah, Chris? It's a way. The Buddha himself de- describes it as a patipad or a maga. Um One is kind of a footsteps, patipad, yeah, which means to step in the foot- footprints. Pada, that's the other version that's used, as in Dhammapada, it means footprints of the Dhamma. Yeah. In other words, you follow those footprints. Or it's a marga. it's a way. A way or a path itself. And so it is a way of being. I mean, I tend to see that hear that way very much not again as a noun, but as an as a verb, way making, moving through the world in a particular way. It is, you know, at the very at the very base a way of life, a way of life which I've kind of suggested to you when I'm talking about the meditation traditions this evening, it, it, that really influences everything. It changes everything if one really approaches it. If you really, really approach life with mindfulness, everything is changed by that. You know I mean? So, yes, I, mean, I don't disagree. It doesn't, what I've said doesn't negate the idea of a spiritual path. It's a path and a way, but I have, you have to hear it in a dynamic sense. It's not just a kind of laid out. That's why I've often joked about it. I think I've done it over this week so far. It's not a root march. It's not a route march from unenlightenment to enlightenment or unawakening to awakening. <laughs> it's, it's a way-making. It's a way of finding way one's way through the world. Yeah. <laughs> Any other comments? Questions?
1: Okay. <laughs> um, back to the practice today um, the, uh, my intention I certainly would like to feel loving kindness towards the person I was directing but I couldn't uh-huh. uh, and for me there's a sense of indignance uh, you know, about justice and, mm-hmm. and fairness and, and I can feel the resistance I can feel the strong resistance feeling it, but knowing it on some level that if I did feel it, it would produce more mm-hmm. But just not being able to do it. Maybe I've worked in, in some dreadful circumstances in Africa, in, in small in Ethiopia music, after they this you, feel, you say, and see it barely, and people have a trail of destruction. Mm-hmm. And if, I'm not comparing the person, I'm trying to find love and kindness with, towards terrible death, but the principle is the same. Mm-hmm the issue of
0: justice? Yes, the issue of, the issue of justice is an important one. Um, it's not ignoring that, it's not ignoring that, but it's in a sense saying that by holding, for example, anger, um, hatred, all of the various really strong emotions that we can have about the people who perpetrate that, it doesn't, in a sense, hurt them, it hurts us it causes, as you've rightly said, dukkha, and you begin to realize that if you begin to let go of that, then we perhaps start to, to melt and soften something within us. And it's very much often, in our own personal lives, I'm not talking about the kind of political situations you're talking about, in our own personal lives, it's often associated with a sense of ourselves that's been affronted or had injustice performed on them, on ourselves. So it's related very much to the self. And I think by beginning to let some of that go in full recognition of what's there, then you begin to melt that hard core of self that, that you know, that we hold on to so, so desperately. But in a kind of further comment about that, I think what we've got to learn to see, if you like, if, if there is going to be dislike, if there is going to be you know, effrontery the desire to see justice, it has to be towards the act and not the perpetrators of the act. Because in a way, the perpetrators themselves act, do these things out of their own suffering, out of their own blindness, out of their own darkness, in Buddhist terms, out of their own ignorance. So therefore, in a way, the, it doesn't mean they go unpunished, but any punishment that's meted out, in a sense, is out of justice and compassion, not out of retribution. And often, what we're desiring is retribution in these instances. It's very interesting in a very famous sutta in the in the Pali Canon. The Buddha has questions like this directed towards him, and you know, whilst obviously, you know, India two and a half thousand years ago is very far removed from our political systems now but i still think what he has to say really has resonances for us in the modern world when he says he said when a king punishes his subject he should do it like a parent admonishing a child not out of retribution but out of the desire to make that child better in other words to bring it into wholesomeness not to leave it simply in unwholesomeness And I think that has great resonances, because actually when we look at things like our desire for retribution, it's about wanting to hurt the other, not bring them out of their blindness, out of their ignorance, out of their gross behaviour. And what the Buddha is recommending is when we begin to drop the hatred towards these people, and I'm actually going to talk about this a little bit tomorrow, tomorrow night about ethical responsibility, moral responsibility, and what's entailed in that for us and others, the perpetrators of these things as well, then really what we're looking at mostly is often a lack in the other. Not the possession of something like evil, but the lack of, say, something that we've really highlighted, the lack of anukampa, the lack of empathy towards others, the lack of even seeing another human being when we're closed in on ourselves, and we're not kind of trying to equate it with you know, kind of horrific incidents, but when we're closed in on ourselves, really concentrated and focused simply on our own self-grasping, then we're almost, it's almost possible to do anything to another. You know, blindness, anger, for example, and we say that, don't we? Anger blinds. When we're really kind of locked into the self, and the self is so angry, we have a blindness which almost could lead to anything in many ways. And so really what we're having to see is that often, obviously in a lesser sense, but often the seeds of horrific actions are there within us as they are within the other. We would want, I suppose, most of us I think, if we really admitted it, to, if we did engage in bad actions, be treated in a way that would bring us out of that into some degree of wholesomeness and into some degree of wholeness as well. And I think that also ought to be extended to the other who do these things. So I don't, the kind of response to your question, really, without attempting to answer it, because I think there's a, you know, there's a lot to it. There's an awful lot to it. Yeah.
2: This is on the same subject uh, in, in my uh, in, Meta toward the difficult person. I stumbled upon a great source of anger in myself—a great wellspring of anger that I hadn't known before it was so great. And uh, the first thing I tried to do was metaize the anger away by wishing meta to myself, sort of thinking, "Well, lot, lots of meta will just, you know, wash the anger away." And it didn't work. Um, <laughs> I needed, and still need, to spend lots of time on the anger and and being with it and al- allowing myself to be angry, to feel angry, and 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 not jump to metta so quickly. So, what started out as a day of metta meditation became an anger meditation. So, uh, I, I think that many times in in dharma talks we are urged to let go of the anger or to, uh, to, to uh, supplant it with meta. but I think you can't do that mm. until you really know it and until you embrace it and come to some terms with it and that can take a long time
0: yeah it can and in a way it echoes partly what I've been saying throughout the course throughout the retreat which is in a way you don't let it go it lets you go You know, it it lets you go when you fully acknowledged it. You know, it's only in that full acknowledgement when you've invited, in a sense, and I'm kind of using these phrases again, which we've used in the meditation, when you've seen something not necessarily as an enemy. You don't have to treat anger as an enemy. It's there. We often see it as an enemy. It's something to be vanquished, got rid of as quickly as possible. And I think your attempt to... (laughs) metarize it out of existence you know, is an attempt in a way to do that to vanquish it, to get rid of it and that's not full acknowledgement of it in other words you're not really fully acknowledging who and what you are at this moment in time with the anger with whatever other negative emotions are there when we fully acknowledge it it will let us go yeah. it's just like the friend who comes into your house when you really really fully acknowledge them, they've said all they have to say they'll perhaps leave And I think that's what goes on. And so really, in a a sense, what we're doing is learning, and I actually was going to talk about this tonight, but as I say, the the preamble went on rather longer than I said it was going to, but one of the things, in a sense, what we're doing with that, when we learn to dwell with it without expressing it, without actually letting it come out into the world, but really beginning to see it and acknowledge it totally within our mental continuum, is we're learning to have patience with it. And patience is actually what neutralizes anger. Having patience, that welcoming in, allowing it to hang around, say what it's got to say, and leave.
1: <laughs> Maybe also knowing that very often under the layer of anger is hurt, hmm? and that once that's um, acknowledged, hmm? the
2: anger tends to melt.
0: Yeah. It's... Until the whole hurt is really seen. Yes, I mean yeah, I. None of, the, none of these complexes, none of the emotions, the strong emotions we have are really kind of naked in a way. They have lots of clothing of other stuff around them as well. They're, you know, they're rooted in other dimensions such as you say is hurt, could be resentment, could be all sorts of other mental complexes as well, which in a sense back that up. What we see, of course unless we let it dwell for a while, is just the anger. We don't begin to see the complex that it is. And we don't begin to melt that complex. So I agree with you. I mean, I think we do have to see the other elements within it. Sometimes the anger will diminish, and you'll just be feeling the hurt. And then the hurt will be diminished, and you'll see something else underlying that. So it's kind of letting it go, melting backwards through it, but not in the psychoanalytic sense of trying to pursue it, Letting it, in a sense, materialize or actualize itself, rather than go after it. I always tend to think of psychoanalysis as being a bit like a butterfly hunter, you know, trying to pin it down eventually. And we're not trying to do that at all. We're trying to let it fly away. So I concur, basically. <laughs> okay. Well,